Content warning. The following episode includes discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic, police brutality, and historical events related to racial, ethnic, disability, and class discrimination, including discussions of violence, illness, injury, and death. Listener discretion is advised. In these uncertain times, it's difficult to imagine what the United States will look like after November 3rd, 2020. Considering that Donald Trump is actively working to rip apart government institutions and further destroy the fabric of our society in advance of the general election. Another four years of him at the helm is an unimaginably intolerable thought. At the same time, while I think that a Joe Biden presidency will be better than a Trump presidency, which isn't hard to do, truth be told, I'm not so sure to what degree things will improve. Biden will inherit a country that is bitterly divided, where even a public health emergency becomes a political battlefield. And as of right now, his solutions are, while better than Donald Trump's, still woefully inefficient for the situation we find ourselves in. 75, 80 years ago, Americans were willing to sacrifice their comfort and way of life for a common goal. Americans rationed food, gasoline, nylon, and other consumer goods to fight a common enemy abroad. And they weren't storming government buildings simply because their lives were forced to change. While the country was still beset by its racist and xenophobic demons, Jim Crow and Japanese internment come to mind, at least in terms of the idea of shared sacrifice. They earned the title bestowed upon them, the greatest generation. Today, a segment of America is overfed and unconcerned. They don't even want to sacrifice their hair appointments or golf outings to fight a common enemy stateside. This is how major powers fall apart. And at this time, the United States may be past the point of no return. You're still at the peak of the coronavirus pandemic. When we set aside areas that experienced huge rates of coronavirus infection early on, such as New York City, Detroit, and New Orleans, which are over the peak of the curve, this pandemic is not getting better in the country as a whole. And yet, with the prompting of the commander-in-chief, governors are opening state economies as if everything is returning to normal. And as the federal and state governments are taking the lead, citizens are living their lives as if everything is fine. I recently needed to run an errand in downtown Cincinnati. In the banks, the part of downtown near the sports stadiums by the Ohio River, it was full of people. It was a Friday afternoon, but before 5 p.m. There were already a good amount of patrons at the bars and walking around, and few were wearing masks or social distancing. Except for myself, the restaurant and bar workers, and a couple of others here and there, no one was wearing a mask. You're on our own, and we aren't helping ourselves. You hear the cultist slogans opposing safety measures such as stay-at-home orders, social distancing, and wearing masks. The flu is more deadly than the coronavirus. Most of the people dying are old and have other health problems anyway. The solution is worse than the problem. Don't give in to fear. An economic depression will kill more people than the virus. But my freedoms. 
There are forces in this country, forces with publicity and influence disproportionate to their numbers, who believe that a certain percentage of Americans dying for the economy is an acceptable sacrifice, especially as this pandemic in this country has played out so far, that some groups of Americans are dying at higher rates than others. Americans who are often seen as expendable. But give it time. Because as Americans continue to throw caution to the wind and pretend we don't have a silent killer among us, those who are not so expendable will feel the pain more and more and more till Donald Trump's re-election economy is no longer worth the sacrifice. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Pot Stirrer Podcast. Welcome to Pot Stirrer Podcast where politics, religion, and history collide. And it's not always polite. In the midst of the U.S. economy reopening, after widespread stay-at-home orders and shutdowns of public spaces due to the COVID-19 pandemic, in many states, offices, retailers, bars, restaurants, gyms, churches, and other gathering spaces are in various stages of reopening. And people are returning to them in varying degrees. But the virus is not gone. Not by a long shot. As of this recording, over 1.7 million Americans have been diagnosed, and we are approaching 104,000 deaths, more than 34 9-11s and counting, in the span of just a few months. And as I said in the past, we fought two wars over the September 11th attacks, when we're still fighting, and it's been almost 20 years. But for an unfolding tragedy, killing three dozen times more people, all of a sudden, it's not worth doing anything about? I'm going to walk back a major premise of an argument I made in a previous episode. In fact, the novel coronavirus is not an equalizer. In the earlier episode, I said that it could be an equalizer based on the fact that the virus is highly contagious, no one has immunity to it, and there is no treatment or cure. So on paper, we would all be affected fairly equally, controlling for age and pre-existing conditions. But that second part, therein lies the rub. Due to the stranglehold capitalism has on our healthcare system, as well as inherent biases in healthcare and historical factors leading to community distrust of medical professionals, some groups of Americans are being impacted by this more than others. Of course, the elderly have been affected quite a bit, We're seeing major outbreaks in mass casualties at nursing homes and other elder living facilities. But also, people who live in densely populated areas, cities, especially people of color, such as Black and Latino Americans. The data is incomplete as not all parts of the country are releasing statistics on coronavirus patients, such as race, ethnicity, and other demographic factors. But of those who are, we're seeing that Black Americans, as well as Latinos and Native Americans, are disproportionately among the infected and the dead. In New York City, Black people and Latinos are twice as likely to be hospitalized and die from the virus as white Americans. And of the 21 zip codes with the most new virus hospitalizations, 20 of those zip codes represent areas with disproportionately Black 
or Latino populations. As of May 21st, ABC News reported that nearly 6,000 Latinos and 5,800 Black Americans were dead from COVID-19 just in New York City alone. This is higher than the death toll from the virus in many states. Detroit represents 6% of Michigan's population, and the city is 90% people of color, including over 78% Black American, in a state that is 79% white. Yet, a city that is only 6% of the state's population has experienced 20% of Michigan's coronavirus infections and a quarter of the state's deaths from COVID-19. And in Louisiana, Black people make up 70% of COVID deaths, but are only a third of the state's population. And in a recent ABC News Ipsos poll, 30% of Black adults and 26% of Latino adults said they knew someone who died of COVID-19 or complications related to the virus. Only 10% of white adults reported knowing someone who died from the virus. Anecdotally, I've seen the disparity when scrolling through my Facebook timeline. The recent murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police and the resulting protests has taken over my social media timeline in a way that few events have. But prior to this, the status messages of many of my white and Asian Facebook friends focused primarily on how they had passed the time while staying at home, what shows they were watching, the fun their kids were having, the trips they had wanted to take this year but couldn't due to the pandemic. The status messages of a number of my Black Facebook friends discussed their jobs as essential workers or paid tribute to parents, aunts and uncles, cousins, friends, who had passed away due to the virus. Now, of course, even then, there were some commonalities. Their kids missing their graduation ceremonies, funny and timely memes, murder hornets, stuff like that. Yes, there are things that are common among all of us, common experiences. But when it has come to the effects of the pandemic being felt in real time, it's been clear that there are two realities, two Americas. And it goes back to a number of structural features of American society that continually place people of color at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to a virus that spreads easily by close contact and often leads to worse health outcomes among people with pre-existing medical conditions. Black Americans are more likely to work in essential occupations than other groups. People of color, particularly Black and Latino Americans, are more likely to also work in service sectors face-to-face with the public, more likely to perform those haircuts, massages, and other services people were wanting so badly while socially distancing and being locked down in their homes. Black and Latino Americans are more likely than other races to work at our local grocery store, the slaughterhouse or processing plant that readies our foods for sale, the warehouses that facilitate the shipping of goods we order online, more likely to participate in the gig economy, delivering our groceries and our packages, more likely to be in the healthcare field, more likely to care for our old and our sick, those who are more susceptible to severe health outcomes from the virus, not to mention more likely to work in hospitals where our ill go to either recover or die. You wonder why a lot of nurses, doctors, and their family members are getting sick? There's a thing called viral load, 
where the more sustained the exposure to the virus, the more it builds up in the body, leading to a higher possibility of bad outcomes, especially in those who are otherwise healthy. And working in essential services often means fewer protections if they or their families are high risk. People of color, particularly black people, Latinos, and Native Americans, are less likely to be employed in positions that allow them to work from home. And the insidious part of this push to reopen America is that people who are in this position might no longer be allowed to collect unemployment. They are either forced to work and put themselves or their loved ones in danger, or quit and not have any financial safety net at all. This idea reopeners put forth that those who are high risk can just stay home is a lie from the pit of hell. Another reason for the disproportionate effect of the virus is geography. Black and Latino Americans are more likely than other groups to live in cities in close proximity to each other. This means that on average, city dwellers find themselves in physical contact with way more people than those who live in suburbs or rural areas, which are typically more white in population. And then let's talk about healthcare. On average, Americans are sicker than citizens of other post-industrialized Western countries, due in large part to the fact that the United States does not have universal health care. Even when taxes are taken into account, the United States spends more on health care than other advanced countries with worse health outcomes. And despite society's overall support for some kind of universal health care system, we don't vote for politicians who are willing to deliver that because we keep getting sucked into the trap that candidates who support universal health care are too risky not safe enough and oh my god socialist so we continue to drown in medical debt not to mention other kinds of unnecessary debt because we refuse to advocate for ourselves at the voting booth now while healthcare is generally a quagmire for americans who don't have a boatload of money to pay for it which is most americans really who are often one major medical event away from being wiped out financially Racial and ethnic disparities come into play here too. Black, Latino, and Native Americans being less likely than other groups to have proper coverage or the funds to recover should something happen. Also less likely to be under consistent doctor's care and more likely to have health conditions such as high blood pressure, heart disease, and diabetes. More likely to be obese, more likely to be asthmatic, more likely to be in poor health. And while some observers may point to cultural factors such as traditional cuisine and greater acceptance of obesity within some of these communities, which may play a small part in our being addressed within these communities, there are many other factors working against these groups that are not within their control, such as food deserts, a higher presence of water and air pollutants in poor communities of color, less money to eat healthier on a consistent basis, less free time to devote to fitness and wellness, subject to physiological effects of stress from racial discrimination, subject to discrimination and bias by medical officials, and mistrust of the medical field. In that last part, mistrust of the medical field, I put that in the non-controllable category for a reason, because this mistrust is rooted in both historical and contemporary reality. While we vilify the Nazis for experimenting on Jews, Roma, gay people, and people with special needs, and rightfully so, 
The U.S. has also had a dark history of exploiting their undesirables in the name of science. The Tuskegee experiments, conducted between 1932 and 1972, deliberately withheld treatment for syphilis from black men, allowing many of them to suffer and die long, protracted, painful deaths, just so medical researchers could track the progression of the disease. Because these men were given placebos and left untreated without their knowledge, even with antibiotics available, which could have cured them, not only they suffered through the effects of syphilis, but unknowingly passed it on to their wives and significant others, and several babies were born infected with the disease. The Tuskegee experiments were only discontinued when a whistleblower leaked the details of the study to the press in the early 1970s and it was exposed to the American public. The medical establishment also conducted forced sterilization on tens of thousands of people throughout the 20th century, targeting Black, Latino, and Native Americans, poor people, as well as people they considered, in their words, feeble-minded. These forced sterilizations were part of the eugenics hype of the early 1900s, and even Adolf Hitler praised these programs as a model for Nazi Germany to follow. Seriously. And the thing is, these programs were very effective. For example, in 1965, one-third of women in Puerto Rico had undergone sterilization, the vast majority being without their informed consent. Even today, people of color, especially black Americans, are reportedly more likely to have their symptoms dismissed and their pain undertreated compared to white Americans. And according to a study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, significant percentages of medical professionals report believing that black people feel less pain, have thicker skins, and have blood that coagulates faster than white Americans. Some doctors are reported to undertreat black people because they believe they won't be compliant with treatment. I discussed in the America's Drug War series from last year that one of the reasons why the opioid epidemic has typically affected more white Americans, especially from suburbs and rural areas, is because white Americans are more likely to be prescribed stronger pain medications than people of color for similar ailments. And this difference in how people of different races are treated, on average, by medical professionals can have disproportionately negative outcomes. Black women endure higher maternal mortality rates in the United States, on par with high-poverty countries such as Mexico and Uzbekistan. People of color, particularly Black, Latino, and Native Americans, often endure later diagnoses of major illnesses and disorders worse outcomes from cancers and other diseases, and yes, even later diagnosis and worse outcomes from COVID-19. Black Americans, Latino Americans, and Native Americans are more likely to live and work in conditions that expose them to the novel coronavirus, are less likely to be in a position to protect themselves from it, and possess bodies that are less able to successfully fight off the disease should they contract it. The perfect storm. No wonder Donald Trump is trivializing the numbers of the ill and the dead in his quest to salvage the economy before Election Day. Those who are most affected are those 
who are less likely to vote for him on November 3rd. So our lives don't matter. There's nothing to see here. While I discuss religion on Potstar Podcast, usually in the context of evangelicalism and my journey of walking away from evangelicalism, I don't get into religion all that much in a this is what I believe right now sense. And I think a lot of it is because as an evangelical, I recognize evangelicalism as a very high demand iteration of the Christian faith that can involve a lot of cognitive dissonance and gaslighting. Does that mean all evangelicals are bad people? Definitely not. I still have friends who are evangelical Christians, and there are good folks who strive to seek the heart of God. But the system itself can be all-encompassing, and it discourages the kinds of critical thinking that lead to asking pointed questions about leadership and the direction of the church, particularly how it engages society and government. And because of the high-demand nature of the church, High demand in the sense that it requires a lot of devotion without demanding accountability of those at the head of it. People who leave evangelicalism find the need to deconstruct, to figure out what they truly believe. And that is a process. And eventually, people who are in that situation land in various places. Some walk away from religion. Others find comfort in other types of spirituality or faith, while others remain Christian but find faith communities different fundamentally than the ones they left. And that's a journey that I deeply understand and respect at a core level. When I walked away from evangelicalism, I chose to remain Christian, but I had to ask myself some tough questions about what I truly believe. Because at the end of the day, any belief must come from the heart, not out of fear and obligation. And evangelicalism tends to instill a lot of fear and obligation. At the end of the day, I am a Christian and I believe in Jesus Christ, but my beliefs beyond that are still being worked out, and I'm okay with that, and I believe God is too. One of the things that has changed is this. While faith and trust in God are still key in my life, especially when it comes to things that happen that I can't control, over time, I've become less and less okay with the idea that trusting in God means we should live passively and not work to achieve justice for our neighbor and a better world for those who come after us. Too often in the evangelical space, trusting God is weaponized to make the privileged comfortable and to silence those inclined to strive for real lasting change. I've seen it even in this moment in the American timeline with the injustices that have occurred at the hands of the police state against Black Americans. A response that says, trust in God, just wait on him. It'll work out eventually. Don't take justice into your own hands. And I've seen it with other oppressive situations as well, such as the perpetuation of inequalities when it comes to COVID-19, as if the elderly, those with medical issues, healthcare workers, as if those people's lives are expendable and they should feel honored to die for the Tao. The posture of sitting on our hands and waiting for God to magically fix the oppressive systems that we as humans have created. That is what I can no longer accept. We are put on this earth for a reason. We are given intellect for a reason. We are given a brain for a reason. We are given the ability to act for a reason. 
faith without works is dead. And continuing on that faith front, there are people who believe that the tumultuous events of 2020 are signs that the world is coming to an end. The continued authoritarian slide of Donald Trump, the coronavirus pandemic exacerbated by the contrarian actions of the federal government and complicit state governments, a COVID-19 death toll of over 100,000, tens of thousands may not have died if it weren't for the delayed actions and then interference of Trump, the economic downturn with depression-level unemployment, continued police brutality and extrajudicial killing of unarmed Black Americans, civil unrest with dear leader egging on some types of civil unrest while threatening to murder Americans participating in others. I don't think this is it. This is not the apocalypse. These aren't the end times. The United States of America is not the center of the universe. We are merely one empire in a long line of empires throughout recorded history. And our empire is currently falling apart, the same way most empires do eventually. It's imploding. What amazes me about the coronavirus pandemic is that an issue as seemingly non-political as public health and safety, keeping our loved ones alive and well, has become deeply political and partisan. Just about all of us know someone and may even be close to someone who is classified high risk for severe outcomes should they contract the virus. Elderly people, people who deal with chronic illness such as heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, asthma, COPD, cancer. We either fall into that category ourselves or know someone else who does. And I would hope that most of us would want our health and our loved one's health protected. That doesn't seem to be the case for a part of America who has decided to marshal onto the beat of a con man and pathological liar who is actively making the pandemic worse so he can get a second term in office. As I discussed earlier in the context of Black Americans and other people of color, there are legitimate reasons some may question the opinion of medical professionals. Also, as projections have been updated over time, the uncertainty a novel virus brings leads many of us who are used to some degree of certainty to be a bit skeptical. But the problem is that there are people in this country who have exploited that uncertainty to maliciously discredit professionals who have years of experience and expertise in viruses similar to this one, who can inform us in a way that the layperson simply can't. These are people who are actively taking full advantage of the uncertainty to further divide the country and place Americans in grave danger. They are actively making things worse. And one of those people is the current occupant of the White House. As someone who was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, I've been particularly troubled by the COVID-19 pandemic. I have family members and old friends who are essential workers, primarily working in healthcare, the justice system, or for the Detroit automakers and other factories and warehouses. I also have family and friends on the East Coast, near the epicenter of infection in America. And danger from the virus is not some abstraction. For them, danger is just around the corner. I know people who contracted and fell ill from COVID-19, some who suffered through illness and lived, and others who sadly didn't make it. 
This virus is not some democratic hoax. This isn't overblown by the mainstream media. It's all too real. And if anything, we're undercounting the true number of victims and underestimating the threat. Though you can probably imagine my extreme dismay at seeing demonstrations on Michigan's capital, protesting the stay-at-home and shutdown orders levied in the state by their governor, Gretchen Whitmer, a governor who has been targeted by the tweets of Donald Trump. These demonstrations included cars and trucks blocking streets, including blocking the emergency entrance to a local hospital. These demonstrations included people openly carrying firearms, storming the Capitol building itself, and armed protesters standing in front of the doors to the governor's office. The situation was so tense, some officials wore bulletproof vests for added safety. And police just stood around. No riot gear, no tear gas, no maze, no pepper spray, no rubber bullets, and allowed this terroristic intimidation to continue. And for his part, did Donald Trump condemn the taking over of a government building, the blocking of an emergency medical facility, the terroristic intimidation of political officials? Did he urge states to call in the National Guard? Did he label them thugs and call for them to be killed by law enforcement and military? Nope. He tweeted, liberate Michigan. But the fact is that what we are facing right now, the rising death toll, the economic despair, the civil unrest, these are all logical consequences of the racism, ethnocentrism, and preference towards the rich that capitalism fosters, all baked in to the foundation of the United States. Is all baked in. When we see the pictures and videos from the anti-lockdown protests held across the country, we see the influence of far-right white supremacists and domestic terror groups in a number of them. At the Michigan protests, for example, white nationalist groups such as the Proud Boys and the Michigan militia made their presence known with swastikas and Confederate flags proudly displayed. With no apparent effort, by others involved to confront or actively disassociate from them during the demonstrations. In Kentucky, the three percenters, among other far-right extremist groups, were involved in an anti-government protest in front of the home of Governor Andy Bashir, with Bashir being hung in effigy. And most of these demonstrations across the country include legions of protesters carrying firearms. While I am very much pro-Second Amendment, I can't say that any protest or demonstration I've ever been a part of has included legions of armed protesters in and around state government buildings. I've never armed myself for a protest. Given that most of the protests are anti-quarantine rather than pro-Second Amendment rallies, it seems that the guns were there not simply because the demonstrators have the right to carry them, but because they wanted to intimidate government officials who dared issue orders related to public health and safety, which is essentially them doing their jobs. Standing shoulder to shoulder at the door to the governor's office is technically peaceful protest, but the act is meant to threaten, meant to terrorize. It says that if you continue to issue orders, we don't want to comply with. Next time, those firearms may be used. But while we can definitely point to the influence of far-right extremist and white supremacist groups in anti-quarantine protests, 
there's even more at play driving them. And the reopen America narrative surrounding the government response to the COVID-19 pandemic. According to several news outlets, including a recent article in the Washington Post, a network consisting of several influential conservatives, Republican megadonors, and right-wing interest groups has been involved in cultivating these anti-lockdown protests. The Convention of States Project is an initiative behind organizing anti-lockdown protests across the country. It was launched in 2015 with funding by the Mercer Family Foundation. The Mercers are an influential billionaire family who, over the past several years, has funded a number of right-wing causes around the country, including running a Trump super PAC, donating to the Heritage Foundation, a right-wing think tank I discussed in previous episodes, and spending millions of dollars on climate change denial, among other ultra-conservative causes, and have been tied to current and former Trump officials, such as White House consultant Kellyanne Conway, Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson, and former Trump advisor Steve Bannon, among many others. So, as I mentioned, the Mercers funded the launch of the Convention of States Project. This initiative has purchased Facebook ads that have a grassroots feel, urging Americans to defy state shutdown orders and pressure their public officials to reopen their states. The primary goal in the Mercers pushing this narrative is to amplify existing anti-government sentiment on the part of conservative Americans to make it appear that overall opposition to shutdown orders is more widespread than it actually is. Most Americans, when surveyed, have agreed with the shutdown orders and have shown that they are uneasy about efforts to reopen the country. Another group involved in organizing anti-lockdown protesters is Freedom Works, a conservative advocacy group that was also behind the Tea Party, a right-wing populist movement that was known for their extreme opposition to President Barack Obama during his first term of office, and helped to drive the massive gains the Republicans made in state and federal offices in 2010. The practice of making it appear that movements are grassroots-led when they are really backed by corporate and other money interests is referred to as astroturfing. And the astroturfing goes even further. The Save Our Country Coalition, a conglomerate of conservative groups headed by Stephen Moore, founder of the conservative anti-tax advocacy group Club for Growth, has advised groups in several states regarding organizing anti-lockdown protests. But the group is also involved in White House planning. Moore himself is an advisor to Donald Trump and, according to Time magazine, has been involved in advocating reopening the country. And in a number of states, groups that are being propped up by connected conservative funders have been behind these seemingly grassroots protests. Online conspiracy theorist and provocateur Alex Jones was involved in an anti-quarantine rally in Austin, Texas just last month. In Iowa, anti-lockdown groups organizing Iowan conservatives on Facebook have been run by executive director of Iowa gun owners, Aaron Doerr, and several of his brothers, who are on the board of directors for the American Firearms Coalition. The Doerr brothers have been involved in disseminating pro-Second Amendment and anti-abortion, forced birth, messaging on social media. 
they've organized protests in Iowa and have pushed a number of COVID conspiracy theories online, such as the claim that medical officials are intentionally inflating the number of coronavirus deaths and that the coronavirus is no more deadly than flu, both of which are lies that are dangerous and leading to Americans taking unnecessary risks. Unfortunately, these messages have spread well past Iowa and have become part of the anti-lockdown narrative nationally. The Michigan protests, dubbed Operation Gridlock, was organized by the Michigan Conservative Coalition. Michigan Conservative Coalition, or MCC, is a conglomerate of former Tea Party-related groups and pro-Trump organizations, and their purpose is to train an army of conservative activists. From this group has sprouted the Michigan Trump Republicans, Women for Trump, and the Lakes Area Tea Party. The MCC is also showcasing the COVID conspiracy film, Plandemic, on their website. One of the organizers, Michonne Maddock, is a board member of Women for Trump and co-chairs the Trump campaign in the state. Another group involved in Operation Gridlock is the Michigan Freedom Fund, which on their website claims to be a grassroots organization, but is run by Greg McNeely, who is employed by the WinQuest Group, private equity firm owned by Dick DeVos, the husband of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. The DeVos family, who made their fortune by founding and running Amway, a multi-level marketing company, have funded and been involved in Republican and conservative causes in Michigan for decades. But according to a piece written by Alex Kasprak and Bethania Palma, posted on the fact-checking and debunking website Snopes, the DeVos family is even more deeply involved. The family contributed a quarter of a million dollars to the Michigan Freedom Network, a political action committee that has supported the Michigan Freedom Fund. Fund collaborates on shared goals and objectives with the MCC and have worked together to add conservative members to Michigan's redistricting commission. The commission was created due to state residents voting to undo Republican gerrymandering that has diluted the voting power of Michigan residents who support Democrats, particularly in blue-collar cities like Detroit and Flint, leading to underrepresentation in Congress and in state legislature. Particularly, these conservative groups are seeking representation on the board to thwart their efforts. These groups have also collaborated on astroturfing when it comes to anti-lockdown protests. Using the analytics tool CrowdTangle, Kasprak and Palma found that the creation of Facebook posts promoting the Operation Gridlock rally in Lansing, Michigan, were coordinated among the groups I discussed, as well as prominent conservative activists, rather than a truly organic movement. These well-connected individuals included Trump Unity Tour organizer Rob Cordes, Cindy Holland, a campaign organizer for GOP congressional candidate Mike Detmer, Onda Gatt, another Detmer campaign organizer and Midwest Regional Director of Bikers for Trump, Brian Pannebecker, an off-sited representative of Michigan Trump voters who has written media pieces praising Trump, and Brandon Hall, a former Trump campaign volunteer who was convicted of election fraud in 2014. This small group of conservative activists were responsible for creating many of the anti-lockdown groups on the platform and took advantage of Facebook allowing posts to be shared to several groups at once. 
And this wasn't their first rodeo, as they were also involved in the disinformation campaign that led to the passage of Michigan's right-to-work law in 2012, which was designed to weaken labor unions in a state built on unionized work. The campaign to destroy Michigan's unions was driven in large part by the DeVos family, and that is where the ties originate between the DeVos family and those who would later drive the recruitment and the narrative behind Michigan's anti-lockdown protests. Kasprick and Palma articulate the significance of their findings this way. Quote, These observations do not demonstrate some elaborate and centralized pro-Trump conspiracy. Instead, they are notable because they suggest that the major impetus when it comes to the people who promoted the lockdown events on Facebook and had their voices amplified in national or international media reports was not so much the specific public health measures meant to counter COVID-19, rather, it was support of Trump in general. Their dedication to the anti-lockdown cause specifically is somewhat undermined by their history of supporting several attention-grabbing pro-Trump causes dating back to 2016. In other words, they would likely still be holding protests and demonstrations in a non-pandemic reality. Furthermore, these observations make clear that a supposedly massive grassroots movement was, at least at its conception, principally the result of a much smaller number of activists who know how to create a media spectacle, end quote. And the mainstream media fell for this charade, hook, line, and sinker. The last time I discussed the COVID-19 public health emergency in detail, which was back in episode 73, I outlined three potential outcomes that could arise from the pandemic. One, that white nationalism and bigotry will be on the rise as uncertainty rules the day. Two, that influential elites will capitalize on the pandemic to further drive inequalities. And three, everyday Americans, the 99%, will discover they have more power than they realize and will claim their power to demand more from the institutions they live and work under. The anti-lockdown protests were essentially one and two at play, masquerading as number three. In other words, we have white supremacists and moneyed elites dominating the conversation regarding the government response to the COVID-19 pandemic, while framing their campaign as a grassroots uprising to liberate states from the tyranny of public health measures. But people will only tolerate being under the knee of their government for so long. Those who are truly oppressed by the government, by the police state, by capitalism, by corporate elites, by society, will only deal with it for so long. The time of reckoning will come. There will come a time when religion or songs of peace and kumbaya are going high when they go low will only suffice for so long. And we may be at that point right now. On May 25th of this year, suburban Minneapolis resident George Floyd, a restaurant security guard who had been laid off due to the pandemic, was confronted by Minneapolis police officers accused of using a counterfeit $20 bill at a local deli. He ended up handcuffed and on the ground with three officers kneeling on top of him, including one officer, Derek Chauvin, 
kneeling on Floyd's neck. The police said he was resisting arrest, but bystanders who were filming the encounter contradicted that version of events. Chauvin had his knee on Floyd's neck as he cried out, I can't breathe, and he pleaded for his deceased mother. Bystanders tried to tell the officers to stop, to let him breathe, and he was subdued. One bystander even said that his friend died in the same way. And Floyd responded, quote, I'm about to die the same, end quote. George Floyd was pinned in that position for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, the last 2 minutes and 53 seconds of which he was unresponsive. He was later pronounced dead at the hospital. The officers involved were fired, and after several days, Derek Chauvin was arrested and charged with third-degree murder. In the wake of the epidemic of unarmed and legally armed black men and women being murdered by police and vigilantes without seeing justice served, people of various backgrounds and people across the political spectrum are seeing this and are horrified. And I'm seeing a lot of white Americans having conversations surrounding police violence and oppression of black Americans in a way that, to be completely honest, I haven't really seen before. It's not as widespread as I'm seeing now. And that gives me some hope for the future in terms of race relations. Other thing happening right now is this. With many Americans having pent-up energy due to the coronavirus stay-at-home orders, the murder of George Floyd was the spark that set off the powder keg. People of various races and ethnicities in several cities across the country have taken to the streets, even in the midst of a deadly pandemic, and what have primarily been peaceful protests. But riot police and National Guard have aggressively confronted protesters and journalists in Minneapolis and other cities like Los Angeles, Atlanta, Columbus, Ohio, and elsewhere, escalating tensions and leading to rioting, arson, vandalism, and unrest. With images blasting into living rooms that resemble the violent demonstrations and urban riots of the late 1960s. Whereas a real president could diffuse the situation and comfort an angry and fearful public. The demagogue, currently masquerading as leader of the free world, has taken to Twitter with statements such as, quote, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, end quote, threatening anti-police brutality demonstrators with murder and tweeting about sicking dogs on protesters. And the police response has heeded the message of Trump with aggression and malice. Much like the coronavirus pandemic, Donald Trump has abdicated leadership on dealing with the police brutality issue and at the same time has actively and intentionally made an incredibly dangerous and difficult situation so much worse for the American people. It's 2020. America is coming undone due to a killer virus, a failing economy, life-threatening racism, and incompetent sociopathic leadership. America is dying due to capitalism. Rome is falling under the weight of its own foundation. And folks, we are on our own. May the odds be ever in your favor. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and the links are right there. 
subscribing is completely free as always and you can get new episodes once they come out so you don't miss them if you enjoyed the podcast please give us five stars on the app of your choice and leave a review and i tweet often and on twitter i tend to give my thoughts in real time so follow me there at potstirrercast i'm jay Poole. let's fight for america's future because freedom is not free